0: Well, good morning. For those of you who do not know me, which I assume there are several here who don't. um, My name is Randy. Uh, You're not missing much, but um, I am a. um, Well, I just briefly, I'll say that I spent 18 years preparing for the ministry Uh, for the past 18 years. I've been a pastor of some sorts, and then last August I graduated to. The mission field, uh, real ministry, and it doesn't, doesn't make much sense, I can say it in these terms, God has placed me in a position, in a secular job, to keep an eye on 121's drummer. So, um, that's Brock, for those of you who don't know. No, but it is a privilege uh, to be able to come this morning and, uh, with great inadequacy, share the Word of God with you. It's a privilege, I don't get the opportunity to preach all that much these days. But when I do, I I, I I have you know, I do not take it for granted. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the text that we've just read in Mark, Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. I want to encourage you to please take your Bibles and open there because we will be actually using the text uh, as we walk through this. And I apologize if I fiddle with my ear. This thing is a little bit uh, loose on me, so ignore it. <clears throat> as we begin this morning, I just want to make a couple comments uh kind of to prepare us i guess i say a couple because what's going to happen what typically happens for me is i'm going to spend about half to two-thirds of our time preparing us to to look at this text and then i'm going to spend about a third to maybe a half of the time actually pointing you in a particular direction in the actual text itself because the text before us this morning is not an unfamiliar text for most people who have attended church for some measure of time uh The story or the miracle of Jesus calming the the storm is is one of the common ones. So much so that most people would recognize it in isolation on its own. And when we do that, it's not that that in itself encourages us or, or doesn't encourage us or in some way isn't a good thing. But I'm going to argue this morning that because it's so familiar and we look at it in isolation, we're missing a significant part of the picture. You see, because people like Mark has And the other gospel writers, as they are inspired by the Holy Spirit to record these stories that we read, these gospel narratives, uh, they're not writing travel logs. They're not just, you know, sitting down and trying to reminisce and just write down whatever they can remember. But rather they are particularly and intentionally omitting some material and including some material in order to accomplish their overall purpose. They, They have a goal in mind. So Mark himself, as he writes under the inspiration of the Spirit, and God, in that sense, through Mark, has a purpose for this gospel. And that's what we want to see. We want to see more of what God wants us to see. And as we look at the text and we we look to find what it is, as Mark was writing, what his intentions, what some people would call authorial intention, it is then that we enter into what we would call understanding the actual Word of God. And so that's our goal, ultimately, is not to, to form an opinion about a story that might seat with our emotions well in a particular time of life. Not that it doesn't do that, but we want to go beyond that, I pray this morning. I pray that you, you've come desiring to, to be encouraged, to be edified, and to be thrilled by the majesty of our Savior. And that's what we want to do as we peer into this text. You see, because if this text taken in isolation... Uh, or if it were taken in isolation, we could simply say this morning that Jesus is bigger than any storm of life. And he is. It is true. And that we as human beings are inadequate and lack faith and therefore buck up and start believing. And if that's the case, then we're done. I, I don't need 30, 40 minutes to... to to tell you that it's there. And I'm not saying that that isn't there in some sense, but I'm going to argue that's not what Mark ultimately is trying to help us see, to to magnify to us through the recorded word. It's something, it is that, but it's something beyond that. And I'm going to argue that it's something much greater, much more hopeful as we see this text in light of its overall context. And so in order for us to to begin to do that, let me back up and get it kind of a running start. And by the way, let me, Insert here, I started this morning arriving by being told that about a year ago we heard uh, the most miraculous exegesis of this text about a, about a year ago, and I did tell him that tomorrow that will probably still be true so don 't hold me too too high of a standard this morning, but as we 've been looking through mark i 'm not going all the way back to the beginning of Mark, but chapter four, as we look at chapter Four, we have seen. Uh, somewhat of a transition because we 've gone from these 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 short narratives into this drawn out it 's kind of mark Parked for a little while on this teaching of jesus, and he began with, with by teaching the parable of the soils, uh, the, the seed being sowed and so, sown yeah in the, in the different soils and the responses, and we 'll preach that a couple of weeks ago, and in that passage. The disciples were struggling, and so Jesus pulls them aside. They ask him about it, and what does he say to them? He, he first says it at the end of teaching. He says, "Let whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. That's a call. We're gonna, uh, we need to remind that's a call. It's an invitation to those who have ears. And the question is, what does that mean? But then he says to the disciples, to you, it has been given to understand the mystery of the kingdom. Now, mystery, not because it's a mystery in our modern concept of mystery, like an Agatha Christie novel or something like that, but something that had been hidden, what was being revealed, but now in Christ had, had been thrown into the open. It was, it was now being sh- shown forth for those who had ears to hear to see that. And so they were told, to them, to those who follow Christ, it has been given to understand this mystery of the kingdom. But then, beginning in verse 21, which we looked at last week, what Jesus does is he begins to unpack the characteristics or the nature of that kingdom. Now, this is key to understanding, in its context, our passage today. Now, I can't give it to you in, in Josh's words, nor do I want to try to, so I'm going to kind of repackage that to serve my purpose this morning. But in, those, in that, that passage, what he does is he starts by giving us a, a purpose and a pursuit. The purpose of the kingdom was not to remain hidden. He told us that. It's not like a, a light that you hide under a bush. It was to be shown forth. That was the purpose of the kingdom, to, to be known, to be seen, to be understood. That's hopeful, right? It's not something that we walk around, scratch our heads, go, well, we just can't understand that. Well, we might not, but we can, and we will, in fullness sometime. It's to be revealed. And then there's a pursuit that's given to us in that teaching, as he, as he said, talks about the measure to whom... Uh, with whatever measure you measure, to him it would be measured back and it be added to him. And, and what he is doing there is he is motivating this call to pursue this kingdom to those who would follow him. But then he then breaks down the characteristic of the kingdom. And I'm going to put it in four categories for you. Hopefully you'll remember this. First of all, that kingdom, let me make sure I don't get this out of order. That, that kingdom was imperceivable. Seemingly imperceivable. What did he say? He said, Man plants a seed, he sleeps and he wakes night and day and he rises and it grows and he knows not how. It's as if you can't see, it's like watching a tree to grow. Stare out that window and watch those trees and wait for them to grow. It's imperceivable. It's not that it's not happening, but it's not one of those things you just see right in front of your face. It's not only imperceivable, but it's independent. He said the earth by itself produces the fruit. And that reminds us that this kingdom is of such that regardless of you and me, it's happening. It's not dependent upon our input or our doing anything. It's going to happen. It's inevitable. He says, at the end, there's a harvest. You put it in the sickle because the harvest has come. This kingdom has begun and there is a consummation. That's a guarantee. And then finally and fourthly in that passage, he shows us that not only is it imperceivable, independent, and um, inevitable, it is incredible. In comparison to what is being seen as it's starting to be unveiled in Christ... The end product, the fruit, is such a contrast. Jesus says, Take a mustard seed, smallest, almost imperceivable if you're not careful, but the fruit it produces is so grand that the birds build their nests in it. So the comparison is the issue. It's going to be clear, it's incredible. This is the kingdom that Jesus now wants us to begin looking towards. To pursue, we, should be, we should, should be desiring to see and understand this gospel kingdom that this man Jesus is talking about. And so his disciples, who are given ears to hear, they are being given the mystery of the kingdom. And so to us, we're to be pursuing that kingdom. Now, what happens in Mark's text is we often want to just draw a line right there and just start going. New scene, new day. Well, understand that while this next episode, this short narrative of the Miracle at Sea, happens immediately after what Jesus had just taught, I mean, that that evening, that's not why Mark includes it. He could have easily omitted it. He includes it for a purpose. It just happens to be right there, and he does so because it is the initial illustration and unpacking of everything that he just taught them. The imperceivability, the independence, The, the, uh, um, what's my third one? The, the, the inevitable and the incredible. This is, now he's going to start. This is real life. Now, does that make this historical event just a metaphor? No. It actually happened. But Mark is now casting it in here to unpack for us the reality of this kingdom. And what that shows us now as we look at this text is amazing. It's encouraging. It's edifying. It's exciting. At least it is to me. And so, One little thing I want to do before we get into that, I I try not to do this often, but I felt like I had to do this this morning in order to help you see that connection. Um, Because there is a connection between this passage and the previous passage that doesn't so easily come out in our English translations. And so what Mark does is he employs a grammatical device in order to cause us to be thinking of what was just said. And, you know, it's kind of like what I just did in the introduction, right? I gave you a, a, a literary device, right? It's called alliteration. They help you remember something. We do that all the time. Well, they did that as well. Mark does that here. He inserts something in the midst of this text that points us back so that we're going, oh, wait, this is about the kingdom. Let's, let's stay in that category and let's, let's read this text, this narrative, in light of that kingdom rather than separating it. And what he does... ...happens as he's setting up this story. Now, everything that he gives us... ...up to the point that the disciples open their mouths... ...is all background. It's all setting. It's preparing us for what's about to happen. Which means we don't want to spend all our time on the setting. We don't want to be like some preachers and read the text and say... you know, ...Jesus, they received him into the boat and there were other boats. Or in some translation it says, other ships. And so, it's actually been done where a preacher has got up there and said... ...let's talk about the other ships fellowship, discipleship. It's been done. But the, the nature of the text itself tells us not to settle here. This is just preparing us. And the very last statement that prepares us for what's about to happen, for what we're going to understand, is the statement when he says, and Jesus was asleep in the stern of the boat upon a cushion. And then it goes, and the disciples awakened him and they said, and then that's where the real point begins. But that phrase about Jesus sleeping. Now, everything that people usually say about Jesus being in control and not worried and this thing is bugging me to death. Uh, everything that Jesus uh, people say about that, that's all true. Jesus is a sovereign God. He's not worried. He knows it's going to work out. But that's really not why he's sleeping. He's sleeping because he's tired. <laughs> he's, been, he's been teaching all day. But Mark points us out in such a way that casts us back to the kingdom. Because literally in English, we get two sentences. But in the Greek, it flows and says, in the stern of the ship, upon a cushion, Jesus was sleeping and awaking him. Put the phrase together, sleeping and waking. It flows in the text, in the original. That immediately casts us back to what Jesus said about the kingdom. A man plants and then sleeping and waking. Now, it's not saying that Jesus is the man not knowing what's going on, but it just, it alludes back to that. And so this this is right there in the text. And honestly, this is what made me start going, oh, wait a second. We need to look at the kingdom. What is it saying about the kingdom in this text? How are we to read this text? And so that device right there points us immediately back to the reality of the kingdom. And so with that in mind, I believe that if we now read this text and discuss this text in light of this imperceivable, independent, inevitable, and incredible kingdom, that there will be much more encouragement for us as we walk away from here. Otherwise, I would say that I could pray now, and I could simply say, here's my invitation to you. Jesus is sovereign. Yeah. You're messed up. Yeah. So, go out here and quit disappointing Jesus. Because the way we often read this text, that's what we read in it. That somehow Jesus is disappointed in his disciples' response. And that's I'm going to say, is not the case at all. So, four things that I want us to talk about as we walk through this. Number one, I'm going to give them all to you now. Number one, a desperate question. Number two, a divine response. Number three, a hopeful implication. And number four, a transformed outlook. You got that? So let's walk through those briefly along the way. The setting has been given to us. We've already read the text. I'm not going to read it in entirety again. But the, the setting tells us that on that evening, Jesus says, let's go to the other side. And then they embark in, the, in a boat. He's, he's in a boat, apparently, and they receiving into another boat while he's on the water. And then they start out and suddenly, abruptly, without notice, without warning, this storm arises. Wouldn't have been completely unusual. But at this point in time, the disciples aren't worried about why or when or how often this happened. They're worried about now <laughs> because they're in the boat. <laughs> And there's a bad storm. And so for them to be afraid, it would have had to be a bad storm, likely. They spent some time on the sea. So nevertheless, it tells us that this is what's going on. But mind you, this storm is not the stress of our text. It appears to be, but trust me, it's not the point of the stress. It, it just sets up the stress of our text, where, where we want to, to get bent on. But Jesus is sleeping in the boat. Again, that's not the stress of our text. What begins to stress our text is the disciples' desperate question. So in response to this storm that's going on around, and what do they do? Well, I'd say they probably did the right thing, wouldn't you? They turned to Jesus and they said, Teacher, does it not matter to you that we are perishing? I'm going to assume that was a rhetorical question. And it really meant, Jesus, help! We're going to hope. But think about it. Here's the disciples'. Jesus just got finished teaching about this magnificent, glorious kingdom that that was here and was going to grow and and come to full consummation in time. And and the disciples, these are the ones who are given ears to hear. They've been given to understand the mystery of the kingdom. Now they're on a boat with Jesus and are panicking. And so what happens in this text is that question immediately creates a threat or a challenge to everything that Jesus just said if this is true then why is this happening why are, are, are Jesus followers panicking i mean of all i mean these are the guys who've been with him haven't they seen what he's done surely they of all people should have said no problem but think about it have you ever been in one of those without notice terrifying situations I mean, if you think about it long enough, you probably have. Most of us have. I mean, it can be as simple as I think about in our household. There's been a few times in the entirety so far of our parenting career where me or my wife has turned around and went, where's Nate? As he's a year old and Sunday morning and the, the frantic panic searching all the house to find that he's nowhere to be found. That feeling, you know that feeling? I mean, you get that phone call, the phone rings in the middle of the night. You know that immediate feeling before you even know who's on the other end or, or if it's bad news or what. That feeling, that's, that's what happens. And, and so in, when life happens, when storms happen, we don't stop and go, well, let me think about this. Jesus, he's sovereign. He's, he's in control of all things, so don't worry. Should we probably... But I would guess that there's probably none of us in here that do that. We react, emotion and awe. And most of the time in the wrong way. We, that's what we do. And that's what the disciples did. Of course, they panicked. Uh, of co- I mean, these guys are the normative experience of life right here. What's happening to them is normal. This is what we should expect to happen. Why? Because it's good and godly? No, because sin has plagued this world. And when it did, it plagued us and we are sinful to the very core. And so guess what? We live a life in struggle with faith. So when stuff happens, we don't just go, ah, it's no big deal. We, we try to act like that with some people, right? Especially the preachers. They have to have it all together. But we don't. We struggle. And these guys are struggling. In desperation, they pose this question. But that question Sets us up for what's about to come because it does raise the fact that if this is normal, if this is what happens in life, then how is that true? And so Mark stresses that threat, that challenge, in order to bring us to the reality or the truth that we all need to come to understand or want to come to understand. And so what happens in response to that? I apologize if I'm distracting you guys because of this. What happens... In response, Jesus gets up. He wakes up to the midst of this panic, and he gets up, and, and Mark doesn't tell us everything that happens. He just tells us what's important in this text. He doesn't go to the disciples and say, you know, guys, tell me what's going on. And you know, He doesn't give us any of that. All he says is Jesus stands up, and he then provides a divine response. He says, it said, the text literally says, he rebuked the wind, and he spoke to the sea and said, And then we get this phrase. It's really two words. Peace, be still. I mean, here's this sea that's raging and threatening their very lives. Jesus wakes up and says, peace, be still. Now, did he shout it? Did he whisper it? I don't know. doesn't matter. But here's what I think does matter. If we take the context of our canon, that is the entirety of Scripture, what we find is that I think Mark is casting this sea in the way that the Hebrews would have. If you read throughout the Old Testament, you will find that the sea is often readily a representation of the chaotic masses that stand in opposition to God's purposes. Okay? Follow me for just a moment. The sea is cast in that light. For example, let me give you a couple examples. In Psalm 65, 7. Uh, the, the, the psalmist writes, and I'm picking up in the middle of this. He says, speaking of God, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. So he's not really talking about a sea. He's using a sea to represent the chaotic masses who are standing ag- against God's purposes and against God's people. Isaiah 17, 12. He writes, ah, the thunder of many peoples. They thunder like the thundering of the sea. Ah, the roar of the nations, they roar like the roaring of mighty waters. And one more example, in Habakkuk, writing about God's being victorious, he says, you trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. And he's not talking about God literally trampling the sea, he's talking about the sea, the masses of people. And in fact, that's the very reason why in Revelation we read at the end, and there, the sea was no more. It's not a statement on the hydrostatic existence of water. It's a symbolic statement of the fact that the masses that stand in opposition to the God cease to exist. So now we have this sea. And the reason I even bring this up, because the words that Jesus used to, to speak to the sea, he, he rebukes the wind and he speaks to the sea. I carry that to mean the first word is a response to the wind, peace, which literally means silence. The words really mean the same thing. But the second word that he speaks in response to the sea is the very same word that he has used in his occurrences with the demons. He demands the the demons to be silent. It literally means be muzzled. So he's responding to this sea in the same way that he's responded to the demons. And again, I would take that to mean Jesus is responding to that which stands in opposition or threatens the progress of God's purposes, God's mission. In this case, Christ revealing the gospel through his life, death, and resurrection. And through that being disseminated to his followers who would then carry forth the truth of the gospel by means of the church. So this divine response helps us then to see this. The disciples' faithlessness, their infantile, weak, little faith in that moment threatens the growth of this kingdom, it seems. But Jesus stands up. And he speaks in the same way that he would to any other opposition and reminds us that regardless of the opposition against God's purposes in life, he is bigger. He is victorious. He will prevail. How? With the simple word. Peace. Be still. We then move to the third word that we find in here because Jesus responds to the sea. And then he turns and he responds to disciples. And he says, he asks them two questions, likely rhetorical questions. I don't think he was standing around waiting for an explanation or justification. He says, Why are you so afraid? Do you not yet have faith? Now, the second question answers the first, does it not? Why are you so afraid? Well, it's simple. Because you. you You don't yet have faith to stand in the midst of this kind of opposition, this kind of threat. You need faith. Well, we know that. We get that. But they didn't have it, it seems. So there you go. There's a disappointment. And, And let me argue one more translation issue here. Some of your Bibles say, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? I would argue that that's not the best translation, that the best way to translate the Greek term there is not yet. Because the implication of that is drastically different to translate it do you still not have faith is to say come on guys what do i have to do to get you to look to me and know that i got this thing covered that's what it implies and therefore you walk away with this idea that well, if you don't have faith you're going to disappoint jesus well guess what if that in fact is the truth of this passage then i am a huge disappointment to christ on a daily basis And you are too. But that's not what it's saying. Jesus says, why are you so afraid? He knows why. I mean, go back a couple of chapters. I mean, the Pharisees and scribes are thinking something. He goes, that's not good. He knows what they're thinking. He knows the hearts of the disciples. He didn't need an explanation. He knew why they were afraid. But then he says, do you not yet have faith and herein lies the hopeful implication of course they don't yet have faith we've just seen their response to the storm of life in this moment jesus knows they don't have it but when he says do you not yet have faith it implies something yet to come because the ultimate answer is you will how do we know this go back to the kingdom what jesus just taught this kingdom that it comes via Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel. It may be imperceivable in the happenings of life circumstances in this moment, but guess what? It's there. It doesn't depend on you, so guess what? Your lack of faith is no problem for God. It's imperceivable, it's independent, it's inevitable. It's inevitable. Do you not yet have faith? Because this gospel that I bring, the kingdom that I bring, there's no room for that. But it's not on you. It's going to happen. It's not here right now. This circumstance just revealed that to you and to everybody who's going to read about this for centuries to come. But don't worry, it's coming. You know, we have the benefit that they don't have. We, we know the rest of their story, don't we? Did that faith come? That faith came in the face of death. They stood for the kingdom of God. It's inevitable. And so for us, what does that say to me? What does it say to me? It says that this mic stinks. <laughs> My ears are just smaller than theirs. I don't have good ears to hear. It says that in your struggle, the normative place of life as a sinful human being who is seeking to follow Christ, struggling day in and day out with your faith. Now, this isn't an excuse for you to walk away and pat yourself on the back. Don't take it that way. But it does say to you and to me that our little faith will not stay that way. And in fact, it will be the very opposition to the kingdom and to our faith that will cause our faith to grow immensely until it is such a contrast from where we began that it's incredible. Such is the kingdom of God. Then finally, this hopeful implication that our faith will grow. It will in the future come. We have a transformed outlook. The text goes on and tells us that the disciples then... Feared greatly. It's not quite exact, exactly what I expect to read. They, they go from fear to fear. Oh, well, how's that better? <laughs> well, I'm afraid. of a storm. Jesus, peace be still. I'm bigger than that crashing wave. Oh, man. I'm afraid. And I know we try, to, we try to reconcile that concept of fear with godly, holy fear. But, you know, sometimes it means that. Sometimes it just means fear. It just means they're afraid. They, they probably hadn't figured out this fear yet. They, they didn't get in the council and sit out and go, okay, now what's this fear you know this, that we're feeling? This isn't bad stuff, is it? This is like good fear, right? No, they just feared. They feared greatly. They are standing in awe. They're like, whoa. And you're thinking, why? I mean, they saw him cast out demons. They seen him heal the sick. Now he commands creation. And they go, whoa. And it poses the final question. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, we know the answer. Duh. God. But they're still trying to figure it out. They're walking in the midst of this. They don't have the rest of the story. Paul Harvey gave us that. So this is their response from fear to fear. But think about it. Their fear began as they are walking in life, in the everyday normal aspects of life. Only they're with Jesus. Um... Something happens unexpected, and they're staring in square in the face of threat, a disruption, and so their fear is based on these circumstances. They're they're ruled by circumstance. They're ruled by the temporary. That's what's moving them to to say and to do whatever it is they do. I mean, at this point, I mean, they're interested in Jesus, but they haven't got that figured out either. They're they're reacting and responding as best they can in the ebb and flow of what's going on around them. They don't have that figured out. They're they're enslaved at the moment to circumstance. They walk through this short narrative to us, and at the end, they go from fear to staring square into the face of, of the kingdom itself. The face of Jesus Christ. The Lord of that kingdom. Who is ushering that in. Via the gospel. That he would live and die for. And rise again for. So yes. Fear to fear. But think about it. Fear based on temporary circumstances. The kingdom of this world. The present evil age. And the ebb and flow. That happens because sin has so infected it. To st- staring square in the face of Jesus Christ. Going. Who. Who then is this. And they see eternity. They see something that's greater. They see something, though they haven't figured it out, they, they probably couldn't define it, but they see something beyond the limited circumstances of their lives that are controlling their reactions and their feelings and everything that goes with that to seeing Jesus Christ as the center of it all. So they feared greatly because for the moment They got it. They didn't have it written out in the theological dissertation, but for the moment they got it, this man, Jesus, he is the one who will bring to bear upon this present kingdom of the world a kingdom much greater, much grander, that though we can't see it, it's happening. It's guaranteed. It's happening. And and, and even in its minute imperceivability, it's not dependent upon how we play the game. Whether you get up and walk out today and never believe, never follow Christ again, has no bearing on the kingdom of God. It will come to bear upon this world in all its glorious beauty. It will be consummated. We will declare with those in the book of Revelation, the kingdom of our God has become the kingdom of this world and of his Christ. And it will be so incredible that for me to even try to give some hint of what that's like would pale in comparison to what that kingdom really is. So as I think upon those realities... In the present world in which I live, where I walk in the ebb and flow and I struggle daily with my own faith, I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged to follow Christ more passionately. Because it's not dependent on me. I'm not walking out of here and messing up and going, Oh man, I disappointed him again. Because he's not looking at me going, Come on, Randy, you've got to get this one right. He's looking at me going, (laughs) I got this. Because you see, we would argue, or many people would argue, well, you know, when the storms of life come, you just got to have faith. Well, what a trite saying. Is it true? Yeah, in some sense. But what a trite saying. Just just have faith. So if you have faith, you could stand victorious over the circumstances of your life. That's not at all what this teaches. In fact, this teaches us when you don't have faith, Jesus has got this. And guess what? Sometimes storms of life come, temporary storms of life, and from our perspective, we don't come out victorious. Things happen in this life that in the temporal perspective, we lose. Children die. You lose jobs, and you don't recover. That happens to good believers. Ask the believers who are, and the families of the believers who are having their heads chopped off by extremist Muslims, if If they conquered their storm, it isn't about the storm. It's about the God of creation who's got this. I'll close this morning. I don't typically tell stories. But in light of, this is going to be silly because I'm going to get teary over something really silly. So bear with me. But in light of this reality, of this present, the kingdom that has broken through into the world in which we see and feel and live in, and we sometimes can't feel it or perceive it, or it feels like it's not there, in light of all that, things happen. It may give us a glimpse of these very truths, even sometimes the minute things. And for those who know me, you'll understand a little bit this, about this. I'll make this brief. But my family and I moved back here from New Orleans, and I took a position. It, it was a heavy burden on our family. We took about a $30,000 pay cut in order to do so. So we, we struggle. This is not a pity story. This is just a reality. We struggle to make ends meet right now. Well, so part of our sacrificing for Jesus is we just don't eat out. You know, this is something we, we used to do pretty regularly. We don't anymore. Well, last night my wife says, Honey, is there any way we could just get some burgers? And so I'm like looking at it going, What am I supposed to say? I'm supposed to say no. So I go to my account, I pull up my account and I go, "Honey, we got $13 in the account? Ah, But being the good husband that I am, I sacrificed again. So I went to my overdraft and I transferred $20 so that we could go get some burgers. I know, poor me. This doesn't make you feel sorry for me. So I go up to Wendy's, the gourmet burger joint, and I place my order. And, I, and I'm selfish in this one because we're just getting burgers and fries, but I got a drink. Um, so I, I order all the food, and the guy goes, that'll be 2105. And I go, oh, man. I left my wallet. So I was like, man, I'll be right back. So me and Nate, we go out the door, and I'm going to my car. I'm gonna cry over hamburgers. (laughs) As I'm getting into my car, I turn around and this young black man is running out the door, going, "Hey man, come on back in." I'm like, "What?" He's like, "He's like, manager said we'll make your food." I'm like, "Okay." So they made our food, and I said, "I'll be back with the money." So I go home, we eat our food, and I told Jennifer, I said, "Man, I want to go pay for it." Now we've already eaten it eating it. So I go back up there and I walk in That that young man's at the register and he calls the manager over, young young woman, and she says, I, they didn't expect me to come back. <laughs> she goes, well, I did it as a manager of There's really no way I could, don't worry about it. So I just led to her. I said, let me tell you all a short story. And I told her a story. I said, this is where things are. And this was What happened tonight? And I just was able to say to him. So this serves as a reminder to me that God's got this. And it should be a reminder to you, whether you mean for it to be or not, that God's using you. That's the reality of the kingdom that we, as believers, live as members of. Though we live in the midst of the kingdom of this world. And it seems like all that's around us is this world and all its ills. We have a promise in the kingdom. And whether it's a real storm or whether it's a metaphorical storm of life, our lack of faith will not remain a lack of faith. And until then, and even when then happens, Jesus has got this. He's got it for you and he's got it for me. But if you're here today, I have to say, this: if you're here today and you don't believe, it's not an issue of weak, infantile faith. It's just you just don't believe. It is my prayer for you that God would so captivate your heart. That. In a miraculous way that you would be transformed from the present evil age, the kingdom of this world and become a member of the glorious kingdom that is coming, whether you're a part of it or not. So it is our prayer that you would join the journey with us watching this kingdom grow until it finally reaches its final and glorious consummation. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you're simple enough to communicate word through stories. Then you have a way of just unpacking them into our hearts and God, I pray that the result of our time together here would not just be that we were together and we sang some songs and we listened to someone talk, but rather that the result would be that our hearts would be so radically moved and impacted by your word that it would transform our outlook as we walk out these doors. Sure, Lord, we, we know that we're going to walk out here and we're going to be faithless, but continue. Continually remind us that you got this and that the kingdom's coming. And when it comes, we get to join and share together in it. So we labor not for this present kingdom. We labor for the kingdom that you have promised. Make us laborers, joyful laborers, in pursuit of seeing and savoring your beauty and your majesty. And Father, I do pray, as I've just said, that if there are those here today who who have yet to believe, I pray, Lord, that you would captivate their hearts and that as a result, that Lord, we get to see that seed crow in their lives as well. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.